Let's turn for our scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 2. And again, we'll read from verses 11 uh, to the end of the chapter. We'll give special attention to verses 19 through 22 as our text. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I mentioned briefly this morning that Christmas can be a very difficult time for many people if they find themselves in a in a feeling or in the fact of a kind of isolation, uh, perhaps uh, without family or without spouse, or perhaps in an unfamiliar city or country, or possibly even confined to a room because they're in the hospital, or may they, they may be in prison, and their circumstances might be very depressing as they compare uh, their feelings and their situation with a world that seems to be happy and celebrating together. And it can be difficult for them to, to face, uh, the season in those circumstances. But actually, as we think about those kinds of feelings, there is, there is something that, uh, such people experience which is truly common to the human condition. And that's true even for those who are married and uh, who have many, many friends and enjoy many freedoms and perhaps have extended family and uh, experience and enjoy many busy celebrations at this time of year. And what all people outside of Christ have in common with that first group of persons that I described is an actual condition of homelessness. Because people apart from uh, Christ are uh, truly prodigals. They are far from the Father's house. Uh, they have become estranged from God because of sin. Uh, they, they have been expelled from the garden, if you will. 
And uh, they live in a situation where there are undercurrents of strife and dissatisfaction that run through every relationship. And uh, there might be a veneer of civility that characterizes get-togethers and, and with other stimulants and common enjoyments. Uh, grudges and resentments might be hidden or buried for a time. But the fact is that people live also in enmity with one another. And there is a kind of restlessness and a kind of discontent that characterizes the lives of people in all circumstances. The wicked are like the troubled sea, which cannot rest. Its waters cast up mire and dirt. And it's God's grace in Christ, and only God's grace in Christ that changes that. And that is the grace of reconciliation. Reconciliation with God. God brings those who are dead in trespasses and sins, and he brings them out of that world of spiritual death into a new world of life and peace. Peace with God, first of all, through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also a world of connectedness, a world of connections that are deeper and that are more lasting than any kind of uh, marital relationship apart from Christ, any kind of family ties. Because these are connections uh, through a shared spiritual life and a shared union, then, with the Savior. And Paul, in our text this, this evening, makes a very pointed application of this grace that he had been describing and extolling. And he makes a very pointed application uh, to the new condition of those who formerly were alienated from God, were strangers to God and to his people. But now, no longer, no longer. That's the key idea. We've looked at these transitions from death in trespasses in sins, but God who made them alive and God who then in Christ Jesus brought those who once were far off near and God, through Christ, who uh, brings people out of a circumstance of alienation, alienation and estrangement that no longer characterizes their lives. You are united together as one in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of these verses before us tonight. And we're going to consider that, that unity. Uh, first, according to the rich imagery that the Bible teaches to to describe this unity, to give us uh, different perspectives on it by the use of, of very familiar comparisons that are drawn from life. You are now fellow citizens with the saints, Paul says in, in uh, verse 19. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Citizenship. Now, that's something that was familiar to these Ephesians there in Ephesus. They lived in a world in which Roman citizenship was a big deal. It's something that was highly prized. Roman citizenship, it had its privileges. Paul was exempted from punishment pre-trial because he was a Roman citizen. And it had its freedoms and its prestige. To be a citizen of Rome was 
No small thing. You can be sure that no Roman citizens were ashamed of it and may be a little bit hesitant to say, yeah, yeah, I'm a citizen of Rome. No, it was a matter of uh, great value. And there's a clear distinction between having or not having Roman citizenship. It wasn't a matter of feeling. It wasn't a matter of people saying, yeah, I kind of feel like a citizen. No, they were either a citizen with its privileges or not. In or out. Made a big difference. It was an objective status that defined them in a very critical way. Now, we value citizenship. And there's a proper kind of patriotism. There's a, there's a proper kind of Christian patriotism which recognizes the providence of God and the blessings of belonging to uh, a country where there is a great measure of freedom and opportunity and liberty and privilege. And we ought to value these things under God. But Christians are citizens of uh, the greatest nation in the world. It's a holy nation. It's a heavenly nation. Paul, while writing from a Roman prison, gloried in the fact that he, with the believers at Philippi, again, another important Roman city, they were citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that involves the most enduring and the closest bonds. Citizenship in the kingdom of God. In this spiritual, heavenly kingdom. A shared citizenship. Something to prize. Do you prize that above all? Above earthly joys? Are you ever ashamed to acknowledge your citizenship in that kingdom? Embarrassed about your church membership and hesitant to speak of it? Do you have a sense of belonging? A sense of loyalty to the church of Jesus Christ in its actual concrete historical manifestation on earth? For us, that means being members of Cornerstone United Reformed Church, a Christian church that holds to the teaching of the Bible unashamedly. And we're kind of eager to share uh, those teachings that we hold dear and the privileges that we have as citizens of this heavenly kingdom. And we feel a sense of togetherness. I was a little bit disturbed and reflective a little bit about about some uh, displays of patriotism in the past year or so, and uh, where Christians got all fired up over freedom convoys and freedom of speech and all these political privileges that they're zealous about, which are under attack. And I thought, man, I sure would be nice to see some of that zeal directed towards uh, participation and uh, membership in the in the church of Jesus Christ. And sometimes I even got the impression from listening to some people that you'd think that they had more in common with unbelievers who are also opposed to vaccine rules than they have with their own brothers and sisters that might have a different opinion about such things in the church. As if more in common with an earthly kind of citizenship with its privileges also then to the detriment of the bonds of real fellowship in Christ. Something wrong with that picture, isn't there? The greatest, the highest kind of citizenship is what Paul is speaking of here, that bound these saints in a common kind of loyalty and understanding of their privilege. That's the first picture, the first uh, description 
of uh, this unity of the church. The next one is that they're members of the household, fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. This is probably uh, one of the most prominent uh, images of the church. Actually, it's not really proper to speak of it as a as a representation because it's a reality, and that's true of other other um, analogies from life. It's not simply that uh, um, Paul borrows from familiar relationships and uh, uses these superior archetypes in order to describe something of what it means to be members of the Church of Christ. No, in a sense, in fact, in reality, the Church of Jesus Christ is the ultimate family. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And Jesus Christ is our elder brother and every living member of the church of Jesus Christ. They're brothers and sisters. You've heard the expression, blood is thicker than water. It's like, well, family connections, when it comes right down to it, it trumps everything. That's not true. It's not biblical. The water of baptism is thicker than blood connections and blood ties. Now, it's a wonderful thing if they coincide, right? I'm blessed with a, uh, a sister and brothers with whom we share a common faith. And yes, you feel a special bond because they're also family and you have so much in common because of those things. But the real bond of our unity and fellowship is Christ. That's bigger, that's more important, more powerful than family ties. The outstanding characteristic of faith as we read in chapter 1, is love for all the saints. Paul heard of the conversion of these Ephesians, and it's described there in verse 15 of chapter 1. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, and these two things are repeatedly set forth as uh, the, 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 the proof of the gospel uh, entering the lives of people. Faith in Christ, love for the saints, that's why love for the brotherhood is the outstanding mark of a Christian. One of the criteria whereby we might know whether indeed we're in the faith if we have love for the brethren. By this we know. It's given great prominence in Scripture. Some are missing tonight uh, because of family gatherings. I think we can understand how that could uh, happen. But do we appreciate that this gathering here tonight is the most blessed, certainly is the most God-honoring, the most Christ-exalting, the most faith-increasing, the most love-enriching kind of family gathering that there is. It's the gathering of the saints in the presence of God with a high and holy purpose to worship Him, to come into His presence and to glorify Him and to do so as his new creation, as a people whom he has formed together with ties and connections that will outlive and endure every kind of earthly family relationship. Yeah, that's an act of faith, of conviction, of a perspective that is grounded in the reality of what the Bible says. Members of the household. Thirdly, living stones in a building. 
in whom you also are being built together. And that imagery of a building runs through our text. It's found also in in First uh, Peter chapter 2, where Peter writes, You also, as living stones, are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being fitted together. That's also the language of our text. We're being fitted together by our master craftsmen. Members of the church are not like scattered stones in a field. They're not like polished stones behind a a display case. They're functional stones holding other stones in place, contributing to the beauty, to the order, to the stability, to the usefulness of a building. With each stone in its place, in his or her place, in this building. That's the picture. That's the spiritual reality of this union, this closest of unions. Now the Bible is so rich. These are just a few uh Examples of biblical imagery, most prominent perhaps, uh, is that of a body, a literal body with members, each contributing something uh, to the functionality and the, the completeness of the body. A bride, sheep, in the care of their shepherd. There are many, many ways in which the Word of God presents to us the multiform glory and beauty and privilege of the church of Jesus Christ. Unity according to the rich imagery imagery of Scripture found in three ways in this passage. But it's a unity, secondly, upon the same foundation. The same foundation of unity that's described there in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It was just two features of this uh, foundation described here. The apostolic ministry. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, we we read something that sounds quite different than what our text uh, appears to say. Because it says there in 1 Corinthians 3, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And clearly Paul, well, he wrote the same thing, so it would be curious if he's contradicting himself. And he's clearly talking about the church. And in fact, he uses other imagery in uh, verse 9. He says, you are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. But then we read in verse 10 of the same passage in 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another builds on it. I have laid the foundation as a master builder. That's Paul talking. In Revelation chapter 21, there is this image of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So what is it, we might say? What? Who is the foundation? Is it Jesus Christ? Or is it the apostles? Well, of course it's Jesus Christ. There is no contradiction here. The church is built upon Christ as revealed, as proclaimed by the apostolic ministry. 
empowered by the infallible Spirit to reveal the true, the full truth about Christ's person and work according to Jesus' own promise concerning the disciples that the Spirit would lead them into all truth. And they had a crucial role in what Jesus Christ continued to do after his ascension by an infallible, that is an inerrant proclamation of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. In fact, when we want to know the fullness of the meaning of the atonement, where do we go? Well, there is much that is said in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, which is actually recorded by prophetic uh, revelation. But there we have the words of our Savior. But the fullest and most complete exposition of the meaning of Christ's uh, work is found where? It's in the letters. It's in the epistles. Because the apostles were sent to reveal and to proclaim under the infallible direction and guidance of the Spirit, the fullness of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Yes, Christ is the foundation of the church because the church is built on the truth concerning him. And that truth is especially made known in the apostolic uh, office and word. That's why uh, one of the marks of the church is its apostolicity. It's an apostolic church. That means that it is built upon the teaching of Christ revealed through the apostles. It's built on the authoritative divine revelation of him through the apostles. And that's closely related to that second foundation here uh, referred to, and that is the prophetic ministry. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it's interesting that the prophets are placed second here. Now, when we immediately, when we hear this, we might immediately think of the Old Testament prophets and that the church is grounded upon the truth that is already revealed in the Old Testament prophets. And, and there is some truth in that. It's biblical truth, but it's doubtful as to whether that is the truth that is taught here in the passage before us. The prophets are placed second in this passage. And when we come to the next chapter, we read in verse uh, 3 and 4 concerning the revelation of the mystery of Christ, which uh, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. In other words, the fullness of God's plan and that's described in the next verse, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. That had not been revealed. It's not revealed in Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's revealed in Christ through the apostolic and prophetic ministry. Now, in a way, these coincide, right? Because the apostles also were prophets. But there were New Testament prophets who spoke infallible truth. Indeed, divine revelation from the Lord. Think of the prophetic uh, revelation that explains the existence of, of the Gospel of Luke, for example, or the Gospel of Mark. These were written by men through uh, the spirit of prophecy. The point being, brothers and sisters, that the truth as it is in Jesus is foundational 
to the identity of his church. And that truth was conveyed by uh, temporary and unique offices of New Testament apostles and prophets. You've probably heard the expression that doctrine divides and love unites. And like many simplistic memes, there's an element of truth there, but it presents a false dilemma. It's true that knowledge can puff up without love. And love indeed is a bond of unity among Christians. But it's a love that is in the truth. It is love that is grounded in the revelation of Christ. The unity of the church is a unity of faith. And faith is a belief of the truth. In fact, this apostolic unity of the church is both a spiritual unity, it's a unity of the spirit, but it's also an organizational unity. In other words, it's a, it's a unity that comes to concrete expressions in the organized church through the ministry of offices which Christ has appointed through the administration of the sacraments that Christ has appointed, with a certain shape and form to the government of the church, which Christ has appointed and made known also through the apostles. In, in the pastoral epistles, uh, the, the letters to Timothy and Titus, we have such uh, expressions as we read in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul had had just been giving the qualifications for office, for elder and deacon, because he's teaching about the government of the church of Jesus Christ. And then he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, this teaching that I'm giving you with respect to the government of the church is so that the church would be properly conducted as it is indeed the house of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth that has an organizational shape to it. The unity of the church is upon the same foundation of unity of the truth. Thirdly, the unity of the church is joined in the only one who creates unity. Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul will quote this later on in the book of Romans. Peter quotes the passage that Paul is citing uh, from Isaiah chapter 28 in uh, 1 Peter 2. Right after he had spoken of this spiritual house, He said, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And here the imagery is that of a, of a stone, which is squared, holding the walls together, connecting them, squaring them as a, as as having a crucial, crucial, uh, function in the foundation of this spiritual building that's being described here. We must not miss the words in whom in our text. In whom, verse 21, that is Christ. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together in Christ 
in union with Christ. We've seen from the beginning of this uh, book that that is a, a crucial, defining uh, definition of what it means to be Christian. It is to be in Him. Is the unity of the church doctrinal? Yes, it is. Is the unity of the church organizational? Most certainly. Is the unity of the church something that is increasing and progressing? Yes, indeed. But above all, it is a unity of people who share a common life in Jesus Christ. That life that Jesus spoke of in his high priestly prayer when he prayed not only for those disciples that had already been gathered to him, but also for those who will believe in him through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, spiritual unity of agreement and life and love, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Our connection with the foundation of the church is like that of branches that are joined to a living vine, deriving their life and nourishment along with other branches that are connected to the same vine. And it's a unity that is created by almighty grace. It's not, it's not the result of, of, uh, of church committees. It's not the result of negotiation. It's not the result of paring down the truth, uh, to a few common fundamentals that everybody can agree to at the expense of the fullness of biblical teaching. No, it's not a unity that's achieved by human effort at all. It's the result of New creation work by the Holy Spirit. That word actually is used repeatedly. We've seen it already. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's language of supernatural spiritual power of God. We heard the same language in uh, verse uh, 15. Concerning Christ, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That's true of the organizational unity of the church, that it's a creation of God in Christ. And it's likewise true of a personal share in this unity which takes place when sinners come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Then they are united to the living vine. Then they partake of this common life that is found in the Savior and in Him alone. And then finally, the unity of the church is a unity which together will also achieve the glorious goal of that unity which Paul speaks of. We hear this language of the building being uh, fit together that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Think of these Ephesian believers 
they had they had lived in the shadow of what is uh, known historically as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Right? The reference uh, is to the the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. We read about that in in the Book of Acts. This large gathering to this center of pagan worship. And it was a sight to behold because of its imposing structure and its beautiful artwork on its facade, the pride of the city. And these Ephesians, they had, they had left that temple worship. Was it to their loss that they no longer share in their world's adoration of its false gods? No longer belong to that common community that their neighbors all shared? No. That, that glorious, uh, temple, well, it would last till about 401 AD. Then it would be destroyed. So they left that temple. Now have they entered the ancient and the true temple, the one there at Jerusalem with its more ancient glory and history? No, no, that temple would only last till 70 A.D., and it would be destroyed. One of these temples was but a pagan temple, and the other one was a symbolic temporary building. But now they belong to the true temple. In fact, they are the true temple of God. And the glory of that temple is growing, and it's an eternal glory. It's the dwelling of God. And it will be perfected in beauty. And it will be filled with the glory of God, never to diminish throughout all eternity. You are now part of this process, is the message of Paul to them. Being fitted, being built up, edified together. Imagine living or talking stones being fitted together into a temple. Imagine them reflecting upon the pain of being chiseled and shaped and and hauled uh, to the site and then being hoisted up next to other stones that they rubbed against as they also were being fitted and chiseled together and perhaps observing that the stone next to them seemed to be in a more prominent position and it seemed to be more beautiful than them, or looking down with contempt on those stones below them, and comparing themselves to other stones and in a competitive or a selfish kind of way. Well, I think we can imagine, you know, the the inference and application uh, of such a sight. Maybe looking around and... and uh, uh, from their perspective, this building that they belong to is nothing impressive whatsoever. And they prefer to get a better view of it. Their perspective is very limited. And yet the master builder keep, carries on his work. He keeps fitting these stones. He has the perfect master plan and the outcome all before his eyes. And he's demonstrating, he's demonstrating to the world what his faithfulness, what his love and what his power can do. And the time is coming when the, the scaffolding will be pulled down and the church of Jesus Christ will appear to be the first wonder of this new world. 
the greatest masterpiece. A new Jerusalem, a city come down from heaven. A bride prepared for her husband. That's the biblical imagery of the church building work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that church will be manifested in its glory. Our perspective indeed is limited. But in the light of the word of God, we live by faith. And we rejoice to be a part of that living building and fellowship together in the hands of our master craftsman who's carrying out his will without fail. And it will be made known to the principalities and the powers of this age. The next chapter actually will will speak of that. To the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.